Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. This morning we'll be reading together verses 1 through 15. So Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Now we are currently in the Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis. This section consists of Genesis chapter 12 through 25. Now you may remember that last week God came to Abraham and told Abraham that his wife Sarah would have a son. And the son's name would be Isaac. Now in Genesis 18, God comes to Abraham And Sarah yet again and reminds them of this very same promise, but with even more specificity. So Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. The Lord appeared to Abram, or Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent In the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you, may be, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 
Well, for the last few weeks, we have been considering the topic of the church in this Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis. You may recall in Genesis chapter 16, we considered the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church. There's sin in the church, and oftentimes this sin has the effect of driving people away from the church. But yet, in the midst of this context, God cares for the weak and for the strain. Well, last week in Genesis 17, we considered the sacrament of initiation into the church. The sacrament for Abraham was the sacrament of circumcision, but for us today in the New Covenant, it's the sacrament of baptism. Well, today we're going to continue to consider the topic of the church and specifically the God of the church. Now, when we consider the church in our modern age, we are tempted to think of the church merely as a human institution, merely through the lens of sociology. This is one of the reasons why church growth strategy and techniques and methods are now the main part of a lot of seminary curriculums. This is why these things are oftentimes the main discussion, the main topic of discussion for church leaders. However, the church is not merely a human institution. It's a divine institution with God as her Lord. Church growth strategies and techniques and methods ultimately should not be the focus of this institution, but rather God should be the focus of the church. Who is God and what is he like? These are the questions that, could, that should consume us as members of the church. Whenever the church stops caring about knowing God according to his word, it's at that very moment that the church ceases to be a church and becomes merely a human institution. Now, Abraham and Sarah in this passage, they are the church. I said this last week. The Abrahamic family is the church of the Old Testament. God, here in Genesis 18, is coming to Abraham and Sarah and reminding them of who he is, of what he is like. And so, who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? This morning, we will see that God is a God who condescends. He condescends to our weakness and finitude. And we will see that God, our God, is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Well, you'll notice that Genesis 18 opens up with Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. He's at his, the opening of his tent doors during the heat of the day, and three men approach him. Three men approach him. Now, ironically enough, one of these men is the Lord. One of these men is Yahweh himself. Now, that might seem like an outrageous claim, and so what evidence do we have that one of these men is God? Well, in verse 1, we read that the Lord appeared to Abraham. God didn't just speak to Abraham's subconscious. Subconscious. God appeared, appeared to Abraham before his eyes. Furthermore, in verse 3, we see 
that Abraham addresses one of these men with a divine title. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Adonai. Furthermore, we see that one of, this, one of these men is able to predict the future. One of these men tells Abraham that about this time next year, your wife shall have a son. So here we see that God appears in the form of a man. How, how do we understand this? How do we understand God coming in the form or the appearance of a human being? Well, theologians describe this as a theophany. A theophany is when God manifests his presence through creaturely media or through creaturely form. In the Old Testament, we come across many theophanies. For example, oftentimes God manifests his presence through lightning or through a cloud or through fire or through sound waves in a voice box. In the recent context of the book of Genesis, we have witnessed how God has manifested his presence through a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Remember Genesis 15? How did God pass through the pieces of these dead animals? We took on the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This is a theophany. In Genesis 16, God sends the angel of the Lord to minister to Hagar. Well, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, this is God. At the end of Genesis 16, the narrator tells us that the Lord who spoke to Hagar was named the God who sees. In Genesis 16, it's only the angel who speaks to Hagar, and so it's the angel who is God. Well, here in Genesis 18, God doesn't take on the form of an angel or a flaming torch or a fire pot. God takes on the form of a human being. He comes as a man to Abraham and Sarah. Now, we... As we think about this, as we think about this theophany here in Genesis 18, we should see here the incarnation anticipated and foreshadowed. Here in Genesis 18, as God comes in the form of a man, we should see the incarnation foreshadowed and anticipated. However, these theophanies in the Old Testament are not the incarnation. It's not as if in the Old Testament we have many temporary incarnations and then in the New Testament we have the permanent incarnation. No, no, there's a categorical difference between how God assumes the nature of a man here in Genesis 18 and the incarnation that we hear about in the Gospels. There is a categorical difference between the two, but nevertheless, we should still be reminded of that glorious event that Abraham was looking forward to. Now we might ask ourselves, why? Why would God do this? Why would he reveal himself in such earthly ways? As a man, or as lightning, or as a fire pot, or as an angel, or as a, as a, uh, a cloud? Why would God appear in these various ways? Well, God is transcendent. God is holy. He's set apart both in his being and, and morally, too. Boys and girls, every week we recite how God is single, simple, and spiritual. 
He's spiritual. He has no form. He has no body that we can behold. He is simple. He is all of his attributes all at the same time. He is single. He is not made up of composite parts. Consequently, then, if God were to reveal himself as he is in himself, in his divine essence, he would be completely unknowable to us as finite creatures. That's the problem. What's God's solution to this problem? Well, he condescends. He condescends to the finitude of our nature, to our weakness. I've shared this illustration with you many times before, but John Calvin illustrates this idea as he speaks about how adult, an adult gets down on one knee and speaks baby talk to a young child. That's what God is doing in these theophanies. That's what God is doing here in Genesis 18. He's getting down on one knee and lisping to Abraham, accommodating himself to the finitude of a weak creature. Luther made this very vital distinction between God hidden and God revealed. We have no knowledge of the hidden essence of God. We only know God as he reveals himself to us in an accommodated form. Now, of course, the climactic, the climactic theophany is what? It's not Genesis 18. It's not Genesis 15 or 16. It's the incarnation. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, we should see a line from Genesis 18 to Galatians 4, to the fullness of time, that climactic moment when God sends forth his son, to adopt a human nature. God assumes a human nature for us and for our salvation, that we might have some fruition of who he is, that we might know him and have a relationship with him. Again, John Calvin speaks about how by faith we are united to the flesh of Christ, the human nature of Christ, and through that human nature, we participate in the life of the Godhead himself. Again, you might think, how can we as weak, sinful creatures have any communion with the life of this transcendent Godhead? It's only through union with the flesh of Christ. Christ is our mediator. He is what connects us, finite creatures, to the transcendent divine God. It is then by faith that we are united to Christ and thus to God himself. So do you know Christ? Do you trust in him personally? Is Heidelberg Catechism question one true for you? Do you belong body and soul, life and in death to this faithful savior? Again, when it comes to having communion with God, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in someone or something else? Are you trusting in your zeal, your piety, your knowledge? What are you trusting in when it comes to having communion with God? God condescends to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, God continues to 
condescend to our weakness. He continues to manifest his divine presence through creaturely form in our own age. How does God do this? He does this through the Bible. Again, what is the Bible? It's a book made up of ordinary language, or it's a book that comes to us in ordinary language. These are ordinary words that we're reading every Sunday morning. God manifests his presence through the preaching of this word. Again, what is preaching? Ordinary, fallible individual proclaiming words from an ancient book. God manifests his presence through ordinary bread, water, and wine in the sacraments. God continues to manifest and reveal his presence through creaturely form. Now, when it comes to the preaching of the word, God is not simply the topic of the sermon. We are tempted to think this way. We're tempted to think, well, the reason why we need to go to church is we need to hear sermons about God. No, no, no. God is not merely the topic of the sermon. No, when God's word is being truly and rightly proclaimed, God's not simply the topic of the sermon. He's the actor in the sermon. God is acting in our midst when the word is being proclaimed. It's God's living presence that's among us through the proclamation of the word. The Bible is not simply a textbook. The sermon is not simply a lecture. Something is going on in this moment that transcends our experience and cognition. God is acting. Killing and making alive, judging and justifying when his word is rightly proclaimed. When the Lord's Supper is being administered, we're not simply remembering an event from 2,000 years ago. We're not celebrating a funeral lunch. No, we are truly and really participating and having communion with the flesh of Christ in heaven and through his flesh participating in the life of the Godhead. And this is true no matter what you're thinking about when you eat the bread and drink the wine. This is true no matter what frame of mind you enter the church building with each Sunday morning. Is this your view of worship? Is this your view of the proclamation of the word? Is this your view of the Lord's Supper? Something utterly transcendent is happening in these moments. God is present among us. Just as he was present uh, with Abraham through the form of a human being, a man. Who is God? What is he like? Well, he's a God who condescends to our weakness. He condescended to Abraham by coming in the likeness of a man. He condescends to us in the form of Jesus Christ and through his word and through his sacraments. Well, what is Abraham's response to these three men that show up on his tent doorstep? Well, Abraham seeks to be a very eager host. He right away calls them to sit down and and to be refreshed. He has water be brought to them so that they can wash their feet. He quickly calls Sarah and his young servant man so that a meal can be prepared. And he prepares what would have been a royal feast in the ancient Near East. This hospitality of Abraham serves as a very stark contrast to the inhospitality that we will witness from Sodom in Genesis 19. So Abraham is an eager, zealous host as he seeks to serve these men who are in his presence. 
Well, once the meal is prepared, these men eat underneath these trees, and Abraham is standing at their side. While these men are eating, one of the men, or, or all three men, they ask Abraham where Sarah is. And Abraham says, well, Sarah is in the tent. Then one of the men, which is the Lord, Yahweh himself, he tells Abraham that about this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. Same promise that God told to Abraham in Genesis 17. Well, Sarah is eavesdropping, and what is her response? What is her response to this? She laughs. She instinctively laughs. She knows that this is biologically impossible. She is 90 years old. This cannot happen through the means of nature. She laughs. And so God responds to this laughter by asking, why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Again, who is God and what is he like? God here reveals himself to Abraham and Sarah as being a God who is all-powerful, as being a God who is omnipotent, a God who promises that nothing is too hard for him. This is who our God is. He's an all-powerful God. Now, this isn't necessarily comforting. When we encounter the power of God in Scripture, this isn't necessarily Comforting. Indeed, when you encounter the power of this creation, typically you're not comforted, you're terrified. You know, boys and girls growing up in, uh, in the Midwest, there are a lot of thunderstorms. Now, there's not a lot of thunderstorms out here, but in the Midwest, there's a lot of thunderstorms. I remember as a child being quite terrified when there'd be a thunderstorm at night. You hear the, the crack of, of thunder, the bolt, of, you see the, the flash of lightning. It's, it's, it's scary at night. I would imagine that if you... Think about being stranded in the ocean during a storm or being on a mountain during an avalanche. That's a, those are terrifying thoughts. The power of creation strikes fear in our heart. And so how does God's power go from being a terror to a comfort? Well, again, through the condescension of God in Christ. God has become our Father in Christ. God isn't just our almighty God. But rather, he's also our faithful father. And because God is our faithful father, he promises that he will wield his power for our good. Because God is our faithful father, he promises to wield his power for our good. This is how God's power is being revealed to Abraham and Sarah. God is not reminding Abraham that he is omnipotent in order to terrify them. He's reminding Abraham and Sarah that he's all-powerful in order to comfort them. His power is meant to be a source of comfort to Abraham and Sarah. Now, what should our response be to this attribute of God? What should our response be to this revelation that our God promises to wield his power for our good? Well, we should trust and we should pray. should motivate trust, ongoing trust, and ongoing prayer. These are things that Abraham and Sarah struggled to do in the midst of, of these 25 years or so as they waited 
for God to fulfill his promises. Of course, Abraham and Sarah had justifying faith. We, we saw this in Genesis 15. Romans chapter 4 tells us that they never lost their faith. They continued to preserve, uh, persevere in their justifying faith. However, when you read the text of Genesis itself, you see that Abraham and Sarah were not perfect people. They were sinners. They were weak. They struggled with, with doubts and uh, this tension between their eyes and their ears, between God's word and their circumstances. Oftentimes, what, what uh, they saw with their eyes and their circumstances, namely that Sarah was 90 years old, did not appear to agree with what God was telling them, that you will have a child in a year's time. Indeed, both in Genesis 17 and 18, they both respond to God's promise with laughter. Come on, this is going to happen. We know this is biologically impossible. We've come to terms with Ishmael being the chosen seed. We too struggle in much the same way. Now this point applies first and foremost to the church. Again, remember, Abraham and Sarah are the church of the Old Testament. God's promise to provide Isaac is really God's promise to build his church. Consequently, then, this point applies to our trust that God will continue to build his church. God will continue to preserve his church. What happens to us is that we, as Reformed Christians, we come to embrace the Reformed Confession. We either do this as a child for those who've been raised in this tradition, or we do this at some point in our adulthood, and this can be exciting. Uh, scripture seems to be unlocked for us. We are starting to make sense of how the unity of, of God's plan of salvation. But then reality can begin to set in. And we think to ourselves, okay, if God has promised that he will build his church through a proclamation of his word, through the administration of his sacraments, through elders faithfully shepherding their people, and through individuals seeking to be an intentional part of local churches, then why are there so few Reformed Christians? Why are Reformed churches oftentimes so small? This can be exasperated as we look around ourselves and our various communities, and we see many churches that have abandoned God's method for building his church for other methods, and they are big. They have large budgets. They have immaculate buildings. They're planted and rooted. We begin to think to ourselves, does God's method really work? we can begin to have a posture of laughter towards God, just as Sarah had a posture of laughter towards God as he promised to provide a child. Beloved, we do not believe that God will build his church through his chosen method because we can verify the effectiveness of this method with our eyes through the size of congregations, the size of budgets, or how immaculate buildings are. No, no, we believe that this method is effective because God has revealed to us in his word that it is effective, that it is his chosen method. Just as Sarah was called to believe in God's method in building the Abrahamic family, even though it went against all that she knew about human nature and biology, we are called to believe and trust that God will preserve his church, even though at times it seems like God's church is just a lightly glowing ember. When we apply this to our own personal lives, there are lots of unmet desires of our own hearts, desires that seem good, but have nevertheless been left unmet. 
We have lots of anxieties and burdens, things that keep us up at night. We can struggle to trust. Will God take care of us? Will God provide for us? Is God even aware of my struggles, of the concerns in my life? This can have an effect on our prayer life. We may just stop praying or we may continue to pray, but we pray really just out of obedience and not with any sort of expectancy. We are to trust. Trust that God is not only our almighty God, he's also our faithful father. And consequently, as our catechism says, he is both able and willing to provide. Able and willing. He delights to provide for his children as any father delights to provide the necessities of life for his child. This is who our Heavenly Father is. And we are to trust in this Heavenly Father and we are to pray with expectancy. The irony of all of this is that when we focus on our faith, the strength of our faith, or even the fervency or lack thereof of our prayer life, we begin to waver. Our focus, again, is not to be upon ourselves. Our focus is to be upon God and who he is. And the more we focus upon who God is, the more we will begin to naturally trust and pray. So are you trusting God as your faithful Heavenly Father? Are you praying as if he is all-powerful, as if nothing is too hard for him? Who is God and what is he like? Well, our God is indeed omnipotent. He is all-powerful, but yet he has condescended to us in the person of Jesus Christ that we might know him and have a relationship with him. It is this glorious reality that we experience in a tangible way in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper.